This is the Monday, September 28th, 2015 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is The History Author Show on iHeartRadio, also carried on iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spreaker, or your favorite podcasting outlet. I love strolling through the Yankee Stadium's Monument Park, or standing on the footprints of the old Shea Stadium in the shadow of City Field. And I'm happy to catch a minor league game with the Brooklyn Cyclones, or cheer Buster. He's the fuzzy yellow mascot of our beloved Liquid Blue Claws down at the Jersey Shore. And even though I'm more of a hockey and football fan, I can name baseball's greatest heroes and its most infamous villain, Ty Cobb. Yes, it's something that even Yankees and Red Sox fans can agree on. Everyone says Ty Cobb wasn't a very nice fellow. But what if everyone's wrong? What if, like Ulysses S. Grant, Ty Cobb's enemies were just more prolific writers than his friends? What if, by accepting and repeating the legend of Ty Cobb as a belligerent racist, dimwit, and dirty player, we're smearing baseball's all-time greatest athlete, a ravenous reader who counted Napoleon as his favorite historical figure. I did not expect that when I opened this book. Nor did I expect Ty Cobb to be called by catcher Mo Berg an intellectual giant. Ty Cobb? An intellectual? And if it's true that everyone has the history wrong, then someone should set the historical record straight, shouldn't they? Well, that's exactly what Charles Learson set out to do in his New York Times bestseller, Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty. In it, Mr. Learson questioned all the accepted truths about the Georgia peach and found the so-called facts striking out. And Mr. Learson is not just a sports fan, but a journalist trained in finding the facts. You've seen his work everywhere, from Sports Illustrated and Esquire to the New York Times Magazine and People. He's also been an editor at SI, US Weekly, and Newsweek, so he knows what he's doing. You can find him at Charles Learson on Twitter and at charleslearson.com. That last name, by the way, has an H there in the middle. It's L-E-E-R-H-S-E-N. Okay, now that we've found our seats and called for some beer here, cold beer... Let's tear open a box of Cracker Jacks and play ball with Charles Learson. It's time for Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty. I'm in the studio with Charles Learson, author of Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty. Thank you for pitching a few innings with us here on the History Author Show. My pleasure, Dean. I really enjoyed this book, not just for what it did for Ty Cobb, but just for the craft of it as a journalist. 
I've heard you speak before about being a journalist and how you need to really immerse yourself in a subject to uncover some of these things that might just go over somebody's head. And there was one thing about Carrie Nation. Nobody knew why this groundskeeper who happened to be African-American and Cobb had a fight. Well, the, the groundskeeper came up to him by some people's accounts and said, hi, Carrie. And no one has ever under that was quoted in the newspapers of the day. And no one has ever understood that, what, what he meant. And it's been sort of noted, but never interpreted. And you dug that up and figured out that it was Carrie Nation. I kind of stepped on your punchline. <laughs> <laughs> well, it may well have been. And if it was, it was because there was a a thing you did in those days with a drinker, you know, if you told him to stop with a drinker, might say to you, so who are you, Carrie Nation, like telling me to stop drinking? And Cobb may have done that on another occasion with him, and now he was he was sort of reminding Cobb of that. I, there was also evidence in the in the clips in that case that the man had a had a drinking problem. Yeah, and they'd had a run-in before just over how he was kind of doing his job and keeping the field. And so it wasn't this overt racism, which is one of the things I think you pick out right in the book, which is... Everybody wanted that story so much, and I'm reading the book, and I get to the point, and you say, you can almost read the frustration with people saying, well, you were born in Georgia in 1866, right? How can you not be horribly racist? Like, they wanted to cast him as that so much, and there was just so much misreporting, and I'll get into some of the things that I wrote down already, but I wanted to start off by saying people shouldn't feel personal that they've been duped. I think sometimes when you read a book like this, it's easy for us all to say, well, I believe this, and so I don't want to feel like I've been made to be a fool, but I enjoyed finding out that I was wrong. I always enjoy that in history because it's not my fault that I was misinformed. I didn't watch Ty Cobb play. I don't know what he was like, but if someone like you can go through and look at the reporting, you can debunk some things, and we want to get the right story. And so I want to ask you if you find that. Do you find people clinging to this false image of of Ty Cobb just because they love to have him to hate? Yeah, the short answer is yes, I do. I I don't find it, and this is going to sound self-serving, but I don't find too many people who've read the book who then still cling to the image because I've I've assembled a lot of information. I give the sources and the footnotes, and so it's hard to counter that. But there's certainly this cherishing of the myth of Ty Cobb as a monster that I found in very early in my in the publicity and all the when I when word first got out that there was a book that painted a different picture of Ty Cobb. Boy, did I hear it on social media or see people scoffing at me or scoffing at the very idea of that. And I understand why, because it's something people have heard all their life, and very often they they got that wisdom from their daddy, their father. You know, we hear a lot of baseball wisdom and stories, typically. Of course, it might have been their mom, too. But So you get it from your parents, and it's kind of sacred information. You believe it your whole life. I believed it when I started out. I, I started from a position of believing the myths, and I thought that I was going to go into this and find fresh evidence of Cobb being a monster, better, newer, unheard of examples, and that's what I would do. That's what I would bring to the project. It took me about it took me about half a day, actually, of standard reporting to realize that something was wrong with that myth and that and then it started to fall apart. Yeah, because I wanted to mention you didn't go into this looking to apologize for him or cover it up. You went in trying to write about him, and you really ended up writing about the legend, which is something you say in the book. It's really a book about this story, this myth that grew up around him that was so much more compelling than the real man. I wrote down some of the things about him being cultured, a shrewd investor, shy with public speaking, not somebody who's putting himself out there all the time, that he was uneasy with his fame, but he was writing back to every single kid who wrote him, which is incredible when you think of how many 
people were writing him. He would write back with that trademark green ink. And you have a picture in the book of him surrounded by kids. He's clearly in his glory. You could see the body language of him that he's, he's not put upon by these kids. He's enjoying it. And I think those are all things that you're blown away. Even if you're just a casual observer of the Ty Cobb movie or of the biographies that have come up around him, because people held on to that for so long. And I wanted to ask you about how that affected you. Like how many of these Eureka moments did you have? Cause I'm riding along on the A train and I'm going, Oh, come on. Like he has, he has a bat boy that he, you know, that he treats better than everyone. He's smuggling this black bat boy in to ride in his car and bring him into his whites only hotel and giving him a job in the summer. And it's incredible. Well, an amazing number of the myths, the, the, the facts that counter the myths are exactly 180 degrees from the myth. Ty Cobb actually was enlightened when it came to race on the subject of spikes. He once wrote the president of the American League asking him to issue an order that all players dull their spikes. I mean, in so many instances, he's exactly 180 degrees from where the myth is. You know, that's what I found. The other thing to, that's interesting, the, one of the, I don't know if it was a eureka moment, but what a realization came to me. One thing I learned, and that's important to keep in mind as you read the story of Ty Cobb, is that he was the first one of the, these superstars. He came up into the American League in 1905. Baseball as a big-time enterprise was pretty primitive then. The two leagues, uh, that system as we know it now, had only been around for four years at that point. Baseball was very popular, but it was becoming the big thing it is it is now. And he was a, the first, certainly of those more sophisticated guys who was a superstar and how to play the role, how to figure out what it meant to be a celebrity, how, how much to interact with the crowd, how much to shrug off, how much to let roll off his back, you know, how much he owed kids. I mean, that's still a thing that's debated. How much do athletes owe us, you know, and how much uh, do they have to play the role of hero? How much are they obligated to do that? Well, when Cobb was coming up, that was a brand new, fresh argument. The men that came up in the, that were sitting in the stands, the grown men watching him, the world they came up in did not have professional athletics as we know it now. So that the whole culture was different. Yeah. Celebrity itself was very new. You mentioned in the book. I'm sure we had political heroes. Obviously we had Lincoln. We had you know, William McKinley was uh, the most popular president since Lincoln, since he's been in the news lately. It was an incredible thing to be popular. And just for playing a game, really, people say that today derisively, but for him, that wasn't what he set out to do. He set out just to be the best, it seems, at what he did. And there's this item about being a mental hazard that you mentioned in the book that he talked about and explain that and how maybe that fed a little bit of this myth about him or illusion that he was this standoffish kind of a jerk, really. Yeah, well, it didn't make him so popular. He did have a philosophy. He had a very well-thought-out approach to baseball, which in itself was new. A lot of the guys, there were a lot of sophisticated, intelligent guys playing, even college-educated guys playing with Cobb. But there were also a lot of guys who were kind of like treated the sport as if they were carnies. They were just traveling around, getting drunk every day. They were going to do this for a while until they had to go out and, and get another job. So Cobb had this more scientific approach to the game. He said, this is a worthy enterprise, this game. Let me figure out how to play it. Let me come up with a system. Let me figure out I want to excel at this. And one thing he developed with this idea of being a mental hazard, as you say, for the opposition, it was a phrase he repeated many times in interviews during his career. And what he simply meant by that was that he would he would be a disruptive force, usually on the base paths, even in the batter's box, by the way he operated. He would he would mess with the other guy's mind. Now, 
you know, this we take now for granted in sports and we, we applaud it. But early in the early 20th century, it was kind of at odds with 19th century ideas of sportsmanship. You weren't supposed to be a mental hazard. You were supposed to be polite to your opponent. The president of Harvard didn't like football because he thought the football players should not look for a hole (laughs) in the line. They should run in a gentlemanly fashion into the scrum. And he didn't like baseball because he thought curveballs were kind of overly tricky and immoral in in a weird kind of way. So Cobb had this idea of being a mental hazard, a disruptive force on the base paths, which he was. He made other people look bad sometimes, and that didn't help his popularity. And that was his territory, the baseline. And I looked, as I'm learning and reading the book, Ty Cobb, Terrible Beauty, I'm seeing, okay, looking at the pictures the first time of him playing, it just looks like a baseball picture. Then I look again, look a little closer, and I see, oh, that guy is sliding away. There's that one picture where they're saying that he's sliding into him. You can see the dirt, his knees pushing it. And then the one, there's the one with that catcher. And you mentioned in the caption that even though they fought after, the catcher said, you know, I was in front of the plate and I look at it with the bag, I guess, in those days. And I look at the picture and I said, yeah, he was. He's in his real estate. And and they tell him, slide feet first because you're going to break your head open going head first. So mm-hmm. everybody slides that way. Now, as you said, look, but looking back, he was really a trailblazer, literally. Well, he had nine different kinds of slides, which which was his thing in itself, mm-hmm. that he counted the different kinds of slides he had. And, you know, virtually all of them were about being elusive and giving the infielder or the catcher as little to touch and tag as possible. So he really wasn't about barreling into you and trying to hurt you. I mean, that would be a psychopath, and he wasn't that. On the other hand, he believed in the right of way that baseball players acknowledged that there was this patch in front of the base, and if you wanted to stick your hand or foot there – you did that, as they said in those days, on your watch. That was on your watch. So if you wanted to stick your hand, he had the right away there, and he might come in to you. Now, Cobb also liked, especially in his older days, to uh, when he was retired, to roll up his pants leg and show you the scars on his own leg that he got from the infielders and catchers coming down on him with their spikes, which was, if he was in that same spot, they that was perfectly legal to do. They They gave as good as they got, and that's the way the game was played in those days. Another catcher tells the story of, Cobb sliding at home, he wallops him in the kidneys with the tag, and Cobb actually passes out for a few seconds. But when he gets up, he dusts himself off, doesn't say anything to the catcher, trots back to the dugout. That was dead ball era baseball, and Cobb was not out of line and, in fact, was more elusive than the average guy. That little snapshot you gave there of the Harvard line saying run directly into each other, that's probably one reason back in those days, you're talking the 1905, talking in that era, they would lose a college player once a year. A guy would die out there mm. on the field. And part of it was, we hear it today, we take it for granted about how if you're not conditioned as a player, you're going to get hurt. Mm-hmm. And as I'm reading this book and about the mechanics of it with Ty Cobb, he really helped to make it into something. It wasn't just you running around there, harem scarum. He started his career out that way. And you described it running everywhere, trying to get into every play. But he really finessed it. And I wanted to ask you... I guess the basic question about today, if somebody wants to get an idea because you can't go to YouTube and see Ty Cobb play, there's only, what, a few seconds of video of him, right? Mm -hmm. Who do you look at and see kind of applies that whole mental, physical philosophy to the game today, if anybody? Well, there are a few guys that come to mind. D. Gordon from the Florida Marlins, the Miami Marlins, plays that way. Jose Altuve on on Houston plays that way. 
if you're old enough, you may remember Willie Mays. Jose Reyes is another guy in his heyday, slowing down a little now. But these guys were disruptive forces. I heard a quote from Cole Hamels, the pitcher, saying, you know, that when D. Gordon is on base, he has to worry about two people. Obviously, he means the base runner and the batter, but not enough base runners think that way. But that's what Cobb was. That was part of him being a mental hazard, what he wanted you to do. He always wanted to have part of your mind thinking about him. Was he going to do something crazy even? Or And he often did things that were very low percentage things on the base path. Sometime if the Tigers in a late inning were either far ahead or far behind, he'd do something really outrageous. He'd run at a really unstrategic time just to plant a seed in the mind of the opposition that Cobb was liable to do anything at any time and to keep them off balance that way. As I say in the book, if there was a statistic for uh, forced throws, errors made by forced throws, he'd have another record. You know, <laughs> he, he caused people to throw the ball crazy. He caused people to miss the ball and not catch it right. And guys would then throw their glove down in disgust or throw it up in the air. And sometimes they'd get thrown out of the game for doing that on top of it. So, And the crowd would go wild. So he was a, a crowd-pleasing player in his day. And I mentioned that I like to go to a game and watch it, mentioned in the intro. And I don't read a lot of baseball books, but I like to read a biography of anybody. I'm a fan of biographies. And as I was reading Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty, I started to just think about how he felt as this man who was really soft, like I, I wrote this line, I was very proud of myself. I wrote that the Georgia peach bruised easily. Yeah, not uh-huh. bad. I'm sure it's been said a million <laughs> times. But anyway, came to me as new because I don't read much about yeah. baseball. But I think it's a book any of us would want to have written about us if we had made that mistake. And I wondered if you ever thought about putting it aside just because the idea was so contrary to what everybody loved. Sometimes people see a myth and they say, well, leave it alone. Let people have their myth. Let them have their monster. So did it ever occur to you just to not even try to fight this giant wave of movies and books and articles painting him as a monster? No, that didn't occur to me. I'm a journalist by trade. So I, you know, and I, I didn't go into this to set the record straight. As I say, I thought, I was in the wrong camp when I started and I had to dis- discover this. It's true that people say when the legend beats the facts, you know, print the legend, that line from the man who shot Liberty Valance, that's very true and there's a great appeal to it. And I guess I, I wondered if more people would, would be delighted to hear a different and true story or if they would cling to their myth. I think a more commercial idea, if I was just thinking that would would have been to enhance the myth and go with the monster story, you know, because people love this myth of Cobb as the monster. And that's why it exists. And that's why it continues. And that's why somewhere now on social media, someone is is embroidering on it, or maybe more than one person. And it all goes back to 1961. After Cobb died, the monster myth really took off and flourished and blossomed. And it all, it all traces back to this one hack sports writer named Al Stump who started this snowball rolling that, as I say sometimes in interviews, turned into an avalanche of lies. That's the basis of that movie with Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah, that's isn't based it? on the work of Al Stump. Yeah. Ty Cobb's grandson is in that. You mentioned, I think his granddaughter was at one of the events you spoke at, right? Was she at Cooperstown? Yeah. And that's a real test case. You would think if anybody ever would want to get the name cleared. It would be somebody who hears, oh gosh, you're Ty Cobb's granddaughter. And people are so in your face. It, in a way, it's what you talked about with celebrity, where people will just tell you right to your face if they think you're a celebrity relative or politician or whatever is a horrible person. Like, What do you find when you speak at a place like Detroit, Georgia, 
as I said, Cooperstown. What's the transition? What's the change in the audience? Do they come in hostile maybe? And at the end, are they shocked? What's the reaction? Well, at a speaking engagement, if it's more of a self-selecting group, I mean, I think it's people who are open to the idea, maybe who've read the book. And on social media, it's more of a people who are entrenched and haven't thought about it and people who are likely to make the mistake of the fact that they've heard something a thousand times is not like they've heard a thousand pieces of evidence about it. In fact, those things that they've heard may none of those qualify as evidence. They're just stuff that people say. The Cobb family has been very hurt by the myth, you know, but they didn't have too much sort of a podium to, to fight back from. You know, the one thing that Cindy Cobb, his granddaughter, who I was at Cooperstown with, that told me she was especially hurtful was this myth that only three players from baseball showed up at his funeral that you know that's repeated over and over uh when Cobb died in 1961 his family asked no one to come from baseball it was a private service they just said it was for family only and in fact several ball players showed up anyway and then some others were invited as pallbearers and special guests but the church was packed when Cobb was buried the roads were lined with thousands of people to say goodbye to him and the newspapers across America and radio and television were ablaze with eulogies. I mean, um, it's almost funny. You don't know whether to laugh or cry. The New York Times that wrote it had an editorial, not in the sports page, but on its editorial page, summing up his career when he died and eulogizing him on, on an editorial page. He was not known as a racist. He was not known as a monstrous person then. All of Al Stump's work was in the future, some of it just a few months down the road when he would publish an article in True Magazine that depicted Cobb as a crazy, wild, gun-toting drunk. And all that was to come. When Cobb died in 1961, he was recognized as a hero. And that's one of the things that you also mention in the book about this perception and people reporting a misperception, the first person that gets to an accident site, say, or whatever it is. And that thing about the funeral, sure, you see, oh, they didn't go. That's it. They, he must have been a horrible guy. Nobody came. Look, they don't bother to look back and see that this was a request to the family. And you had another great piece of journalism, again, just so much respect for it that you go and you say, you know how I know these bellboy and uh, and what the night watchman the hotel detective you know i know that they're not likely at all to have been black and there was no racial component is in the article they don't say it because there was always that qualifier and as somebody who reads a lot of news articles just raw from that era that's so true you wouldn't say uh man stabs woman if there was a racial component you would heck they don't do it much today right denzel washington when he accepted his oscar afterwards the reporter asked him when do you think an article will be written that just says actor wins Oscar, not black actor wins it? And Denzel Washington said to him, you write it tomorrow. Right. <laughs> Your reporters go do it, right? In the early 20th century, race was a sensational item. It added a dose of little sensationalism to every story. So if you could say Negro does this or Negro is killed, it added a little spice to the story and it was never left out. We're talking about an issue here in which a man named Charles Alexander wrote a biography in the 80s that reported that Cobb fought with uh, several people, had several um, uh, important fights in his career with people who were black. And it turns out, I found, in going back to the historical record, those people were white. They weren't black. So we have to move them to the other side of the ledger. So Cobb's record regarding uh, African-American people begins to, to shift dramatically when you do that. The papers of the day never never overlook that. And apart from that, I was actually able, in most cases, to go back and find the census reports that, that said these people were white. Cobb fought a lot. He had a lot of fistfights, even in an era 
when men generally resorted to their fists more than they do now, uh, he was known as a fighter. There's no getting around that. He had a hair-trigger temper, and he could not suffer fools, and had very high standards for himself and the people around him. And that lasted till the end of his life when he was a patient in the hospital. When he was dying, he was very hard on the doctors and the nurses because he demanded excellence, but he didn't wave a gun around or have a gun in his hotel room or anything. And I talked to doctors who were in the room with him. Wow. So uh, I know that for a fact. That's all Al Stump manufactured nonsense, you know. Gosh, just blowing it all up. Mm-hmm. You said about the era of men fighting. There's a great detail in there. And you see it sometimes in the old pictures, guys that have their faces smashed. You'd walk down the Bowery here in New York City, Skid Row at the time, and there were shops where you could go in, Black Eye Shop, right? And just Black go Eye in Repair and Shops. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how common it was. Right. Think about how common auto repair shops are now because <laughs> everyone's hitting each other or opening right. their doors too hard. Like, that was not excusable, but here we've gone from, oh gosh, he was on the warpath against any African-American he saw that he wanted to fight with to, well, he was fighting with uh, white people that were misidentified to, well, it was pretty common then. And for somebody with that hair trigger who was so intense, not that you forgive that, but it's such a completely different impression that you get as you read all the evidence in Ty Cobb, The Terrible Beauty. Right. Yeah. Well, as you said before, you know, people make assumptions because Ty Cobb was born in 1886 in, in rural Georgia. And they say, well, how could he not be racist? How could someone like that not be racist? And I understand their skepticism, but there's an answer to the question. The answer is that he descended from a long line of abolitionists, that his great-grandfather was a preacher who preached against slavery and got run out of town for it. His grandfather refused to fight in the Confederate Army because of the slavery issue. And uh, his father was a state senator who supported his black constituents and had a very short political career as a result of that. He was also an educator and a principal in school and a head of the uh, school system in his county. And he broke up lynch mobs, Cobb's father in town. So that's the background that Ty Cobb came from. And he, Cobb himself never said anything about racism. No one asked him. It wasn't the kind of thing you would ask a ball player until 1952 when he was asked about the integration of the Texas League five years after Jackie Robinson broke the color line in the in the major leagues. And Cobb said that the Negro should be accepted into baseball wholeheartedly and not grudgingly. He said the Negro has the right to compete in professional sports and who's to say he has not. And I love that it's so Cobb and who's to say he has not. In other words, you have to go through me if you're going to say, who are you to say you're better than someone else and can't and say they can't play? In the meantime, Cobb had attended Negro League games, sat in the dugout with the players, threw out the first ball at Negro League games. There's no evidence of Cobb being racist, really, and there's a lot of evidence to the contrary. But yet people love this thing. You know, why do they love it? Well, one reason I think it helps them feel superior to someone. You know, they can say this about someone. It's a way of saying, I'm not racist. I'm an enlightened person because I'm putting down someone who is a racist. Well, the problem with that is that Cobb wasn't. Yeah, you can never be in the Hall of Fame or have all his records, but you can have this over him, I guess. Yes. If we, and it's not as if there's not. Nobody's perfect. Things we have over him. But when you read the historical record with your eye so carefully looking at the words and what is said, it's really forensics. And there was one statement after one of his fights. I, I believe it's the man who's paving the street tries to stop him, the black man. And he resented being told to stop by a black man that was working in front of him. You add a, italics there and you say, 
well, you quote Cobb, and Cobb says, I would have treated any man the same way. He just took offense to him, and he's right. like, he didn't like that he bugged him, and it was really, he was in the wrong, it was over nothing. Right. But he put that in sort of to, at least when we read into it, what's the reason to put that in? It's not because you're saying, well, how dare he step out of his place and all these things right. that were commonplace at the time. And instead, you look at that and say, well, that, if anything, argues against it. Mm -hmm. And that's why you italicized it, because he's saying, hey, New York Times reporter or Detroit News, why don't you leave out all those things where you make it a racial issue? At least that's how I read it there. And it's certainly not him saying anything of the kind about it being a racially motivated incident. Right. And meanwhile, the paper that covered that fight, uh, the street fight with the street worker, had these horribly racist cartoons where they made the, you know, they had these monkey-like characters that were supposed to be the street repair guy. So the papers were, were so much more racist than Cobb ever was. It's sort of an amazing story. <laughs> it is definitely an amazing story. And it's time for the seventh inning stretch where I want to reintroduce you to everybody and say, I'm speaking with Charles Learson, author of Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty. You can find him at Charles Learson on Twitter or charleslearson.com. Remember, there's an H in there, L-E-E-R-H-S-E-N. The Boston Globe said in their review of the book, quote, if veteran sports writer Learson is correct about Cobb and his book is assiduously researched and his points lucidly expressed, then A Terrible Beauty is not only the best work ever written on this American sports legend, it's a major reconsideration of a reputation unfairly maligned for decades. And as a journalist, again, you must have gotten worked up by that, and yet you managed to continue. And I just want to encourage people. Hopefully, they'll go out, they'll buy Ty Cobb, Terrible Beauty, they'll read it, and they'll learn that you can do this in all kinds of things. And I think today, you often look at a story, and you want to send it, say, to your producer, to your host, if you're a journalist. And I always say, well, what's the primary source on this? Where, where does it go back to? You have a lot of stories linking to each other now. The internet is so bad for that. And with this book, you went into such detail and dug through so many dusty records. This is a hundred years ago. And I wanted to ask you, how much of that time did you spend just in libraries looking at the old film and the old pages? And you gave up on some things because the records just don't exist. And, how many of those holes do you think you have that you'd you'd love to fill with Ty Cobb? Well, I spent, you know, almost four years working on the book. And, you know, these days you don't actually often have to go to the library, but you bent over your computer. A lot of newspapers, uh, thankfully, are on uh, digitalized and online. But I did go back. You know, the, a bad book, in my opinion, is a bad history book is one that only cites other books. You know, like it, there's a formula for history writers. You know, you uh, read five books, write one, you know, or read 20 books and write write one. The problem with that is that how well sourced are the books you're reading from? Just because something is in print in a book doesn't mean it's true. So, uh, uh, baseball is a very well covered sport and was in 1905 when Cobb came up and throughout his career. I mean, you had, it's, there's so many games when the players are out there. There's in between days when there's the sports writers are writing about the team and there were more newspapers than, than there are today. So the, the sport is very well covered and there's a lot to be gleaned from. And, and granted, the papers can get things wrong and distort things too. So and you have to weigh that into your judgment as you go along. But there's so much more information and data and stories out there. And this is a story. This is not a polemic. It's a great American story. In the process of telling the story, I think the record gets set straight. But it's a story of this guy who came up to the, the major leagues 
from a low-level minor league team in, in Georgia, uh, like a disrespected minor league team in 1905. He was 18 years old. He came up a couple of weeks after his mother had shot and killed his father uh, by accident. We're still not sure, but his mother was under arrest at the time for manslaughter. And he came up in that environment to the major leagues. He played in the first major league game he ever saw. He sat on the bench and then played the next day in this big city environment, which he'd never been north of the Mason-Dixon line before. And he turned himself into arguably the greatest ball player of all time. And I think certainly the most exciting player of all time, which is something that gets lost in the, the fact that we don't have a, the film on him. So it's it's a great American story, and along the way, the record gets set straight. But I think it's a story you can get wrapped up in, and I did as I went along. And the idea of no TV and all these newspapers, as you're talking about it, I'm thinking when I'm reading Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty, saying you're showing three or four different sometimes accounts of the same incident. And these reporters could easily make up stories, and they were incentivized to because, hey, they've got to compete with six other dailies in the mm-hmm. city or they have to really get their editor. Come on, give me something on Cobb. Give me because he becomes this big icon. And so they start to really compete with each other to sort of add a little bit of spice. And because there's no TV, there's no Twitter, the people watching the game in person might see something, but there's not this coverage where you could say, Let's watch that film again and again of him sliding into Baker there, the catcher, and see what what was he really aiming for. And nobody cares afterwards that, well, they fought. That's all you need to know. Cut cut and print it, right? right. Nobody cares that, oh, hey, afterwards, uh, Baker said, no, he was trying to kick the ball out of my hand. Because Spike, I thought of this reading, and I thought, that's a fun word, Spike, right? <laughs> I mean, you could call him a spiker. Like, who, honestly, who among us wouldn't want to kick somebody with some spikes, right? And <laughs> that gets in our way or annoys us. And so they, there was like this love hate rooting for him. And the press just, they were able to manufacture it out of whole cloth sometimes. Well, yeah, in the t- early 20th century, there was a fascination with spikes. Cause as I said before, the uh, people in the stands hadn't come up with organized sports or even scholastic sports. People had no firsthand experience with spikes. They were these mysterious, partly medieval, partly sci-fi kind of weird things you strapped on your feet and they had little daggers on them and and people were fascinated and thought somebody's going to get killed you'd see in the paper well of course no one has ever been killed by spikes you certainly can get injured but there was this over fascination with that that some of the you're right some of the out-of-town non-detroit newspaper man then stretched into the myth of ty Cobb being a dirty player but i could not find a player, a rival or a teammate, and even some of his teammates he didn't get along with, who backed up that myth. They said to a man that he was a clean player and he played within the rules and was, in fact, a hard guy to touch and a hard guy to make contact with, not a not a slasher and a spiker. People just didn't know what spikes were for. They didn't understand the mechanics of the game the way that he did. And I like the fact that, unlike Shoeless Joe Jackson, who is a natural and people would say he's a natural athlete, Ty Cobb didn't like to be called a natural athlete because he felt, I worked at this. I'm sure you get it with the book. People will say, oh, well, you published a book before. You could, you were a sports writer. That must have been easy. You did it over a weekend. And you would say, hey, this took a lot of research. So for him, I think that that was a whole other level of just irritation that, hey, I'm trying to play this game professionally, which no one's done before. And then to be maligned or misunderstood, that had to really get to him. And there was no outlet in those days, really, because even if you go talk to the press, they they don't want to hear that. 
Yeah. <laughs> he was an easy guy to irritate, and that certainly irritated him when he was called a natural as he was. People just meant it as a, like, oh, he's very good at this, but he, he didn't like that because he did put in a lot of hard work, and he did really resent being called a dirty player, and that's how he met Al Stump. He wanted to write a biography at the end of his life, setting the record straight, and the publisher set him up with Al Stump to be his ghostwriter, and Stump did a horrible job, spent very little time with Cobb, just worked mostly from clips, and wouldn't let Cobb see the manuscript as it was in progress. When Cobb finally did see it, Cobb flipped out and tried to get the publication stopped. I'm the first one to report that, and because there's that book is out there, and people respect it and see it as written in Cobb's voice. It's a first-person account, but it's, it's something that Ty Cobb hated and thought was ridiculous, and it, it is ridiculous. It's written in, like, B-movie dialogue and made-up facts and a lot of mistakes in it. Cobb was was dying and didn't have the energy to stop its publication, and so it came out a couple of months after he died, and it wasn't a great success. And then a couple of months after that, Stump wrote his magazine article in which he said, well, this is the inside story of how I reported my book with Cobb, and this is how I found him. And Stump told millions of <laughs> packed more lies in that one magazine article than uh, you might think imaginable, and starting with the fact that the amount of time he spent with Cobb, he, he claimed he was with him for months on end. In fact, he was with him only for parts of several days, and, and that's where the exaggerations started. But people loved to hear that it was, it was a scandalous story. It was titillating. You have to remember, this is nine years before the book Ball 4, Jim Bouton's book, which exposed baseball players as, in some cases, womanizers and drinkers and wild men. No one had ever said that about a professional athlete in print before, believe it or not. Yeah, and, it does uh, seem impossible. Day, <laughs> I, yeah, it hardly <laughs> seems possible. But uh, So people were shocked to hear this. And the other thing about the myth was that it seemed to fit with Cobb's personality of being fierce and very irritable, perfectionist, and the guy to fly off the handle and start throwing punches. So it, th that seemed to fit, so that made sense to people. And then they just took it and ran with it and started embroidering on it. Right. People just don't say he fought with black people. They say he killed black people. You had to track a lot of those rumors down, like things pop into people's heads. And that was right. one thing you searched around is there's no evidence that anyone was found dead. Or, well, they say he beat the man's face off, pistol whipped him, right? His face off. That's what some said. No, no one was killed anywhere. Right. And fights he had have been exaggerated into murders. You know, none of that happened. But yet you can go on the internet today and find someone to say, how can they keep Pete Rose out of the Hall of Fame? Ty Cobb is in the Hall of Fame and he killed three people. Well, he didn't, you know, but I mean, that's how the snowball keeps rolling. And the thing where we were talking about him being a natural or him not liking the term natural, part of the reason probably was he was so educated. And as you do here in the book on Ty Cobb, you watch the words that are used. And I'm sorry you heard that. And he said, well, I'm going to strictly interpret that. The word natural means something. It means mm -hmm. I woke up and I just started swinging a rolling pin or whatever. And I just came naturally to me. And he felt that wasn't the right word for it. And he was so well-educated. You have a picture in the book of him being given bundles of books. And the caption says that it's instead of giving him trophies and such, they would give him or cigars or all the things they would give you back then. Like he was an educated man and he I can't believe the feeling that he must have had reading a book that was supposed to be his book at the end of his life. That just must have been a terrible story. It backfired on him terribly because he thought that this would be his crowning, you know, explanation for his career. And the fact that, as I say in the book, he spent Half of the first, it wouldn't be off to say that he spent half of his, first half of his career sort of trying to convince people he was a little crazy on the base paths, and the second half explaining that he was doing that on purpose as a strategy and a tactic. 
but he never was able in some people's mind he never was able to completely explain it you know uh, fully you know he was he yeah, we have to remember him as as not a sourpuss though because as, as like a great he had some of what he did on the base path could make you laugh you know it was so funny the way he outwitted people someone once said that ty cobb getting a walk was more exciting than babe ruth hitting a home run because when ruth hit a home run yeah it was exciting but it was over in an in a flash with cobb trotting down to first base was just the beginning of it i mean here's a guy who stole second third and home on three consecutive pitches a guy who once hit an inside-the-park home run on a tap back to the pitcher's mound, and he didn't even slide on that play. So, I mean, you know, you never knew what was going to happen when Cobb came to the plate, and that's what packed the stands. He was the biggest draw in baseball, and he, he got an award in Chicago as the most beloved out-of-town player. You, you, you love to boo him because he was bad medicine for your home team if you were not from Detroit, but you couldn't help but admire the way he played. And he volunteered for the First World War and not for just a show job, not for coaching the Army baseball team, volunteered for the Flame Men. And if you look back <laughs> at those photos, like, oh, my gosh, those guys lived maybe uh, 15 minutes. What was the average for those guys throwing grenades? They and- ran ahead of the infantry throwing bags of ga- flaming <laughs> yeah. gas at people. You know, it's, yeah. And that's what the he, yeah. a very typical Ty Cobb. And chemical, uh, chemical warfare. Right, division. yeah. Who yeah. volunteers for that? Right. Amazing. right. Well, they show what kind of guy. I mean, at the end of his life, he's, he built a hospital in his hometown, and he also started an education fund in Georgia for kids to send kids to college. He sent kids of every race and color and creed. No one was ever had to designate what color they were or what race they were. And he also helped privately without ever getting any credit for it. He helped a lot of his fellow ball players, some of whom weren't very friendly to him in his day. He helped them financially later in life. And he was a good grandfather to his grandkids. They remember him as uh, the kindly old grandpa, and so it really hurts them to see the, the lies and hear the lies that are told about him. You see that picture of him in the book with Joe DiMaggio, and he's just smiling. I mean, he's got sort of the elderly Irish face, a little bit, little bit like maybe uh, Coach Coughlin of the New York Giants. Right. He just sort of has that just lit up, happy guy, black right. and white, obviously, but. I thought another thing about his World War II, World War One rather service. The reason why you haven't heard any maybe great war exploit stories on Ty Cobb is because you write in the book the war ended. Armistice came before he got to squirt any flaming gasoline. I believe he wrote it as on the Hun <laughs> on so, fleeing Huns. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just wanted to mention, even if you're not a baseball fan, Ty Cobb, a terrible beauty. It really was funny. There's funny things in it too. It's not just trying to debunk a bunch of things, which I'm sure you could have fallen into. It was good. It's edited down to there's still a story in the book and things about guys like Babe Ruth. When they when he steps into a story, uh, they I recognize that guy. I want to read about him. And he had a relationship, too, with Ty Cobb that isn't at all what people think. When that thing about the funerals, he, he had a relationship with all these guys and was not hated and reviled, was he? By yeah, no, a guy named Lou Brissy, who was a pitcher who I interviewed, who since passed away since I interviewed him. Uh, I had lunch with him in, in Georgia, very gracious man, and was a war hero, too, in World War II. He was from the generation after Cobb, but he knew Cobb. And he said, look, you, you have to understand that Cobb was – on another plane from most guys. And he was like a Jeter, an A-Rod, a Mike Trout, whatever you want to say, a superstar, Willie Mays. And 
let's remember, let's put ourselves back in the early 20th century frame of mind where the, the relationships on a team, those things hadn't been worked out yet. The etiquette of how to act even in the ballpark, even for fans, was still a work in progress. Guys weren't used to being on a team. They didn't realize that some guys would sort themselves out and be superstars. They'd be paid more. They'd get endorsements. They'd be recognized more. They'd be more popular. And until you came to terms with that, and Cobb was, the, in a way, you could say the first superstar. You either came to terms with that as a teammate of his or you were very resentful all the time. So most guys, after a while, got the gist of it. Okay, this guy's batting 377, 402. You know, he's going to be a star. He's going to be on another plane and I'm not. But for a while, there was a lot of resistance to that idea of him getting special treatment. The Tigers loved him, treated him very, very specially, and that probably fueled some player resentment, too. I wanted to mention one other movie thing that's wrong, and that's in Field of Dreams, where the Shoeless Joe Jackson character says of Cobb, no one liked that son of a bitch. This is also an uh, apocryphal, in case you thought a movie about dead baseball players coming back as a documentary, everybody. That was not the case either. I wanted to thank you so much, but I have one last pitch to throw at you, and that is, outside of reading Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty, how can people help? to get the facts right about Ty Cobb. One thing they could do, I think social media offers the chance. If, if you're a baseball fan and you're on certain sites or on certain Facebook pages or tweeting about baseball and you have friends and people that, that you follow that do, you're going to encounter people that are saying wrong, stupid, dumb, ignorant things about Ty Cobb. And I think on a case-by-case basis, I know I have trouble resisting myself sometimes, and I feel I should because I'm, I wrote a book about him. But I think you can correct the facts. When people say... Here's someone who murdered people and he's in the Hall of Fame. Maybe on a case-by-case basis, you can step in and say this. You know, here's someone who's the worst racist. When you hear someone say an avowed racist, you ask them what that means exactly. You know, do you take a vow to be a racist? And where did you do this that was recorded? And who recorded it? And where's the quote? And where's the, where's your proof of this? People can provide the proof, then that's one thing. But if they can't, then they should shut up. And so I think social media allows us to just step in sometimes and set people right. Maybe I'm just too Pollyannish about this, but on a case-by-case basis, what the book doesn't do, maybe you know the rest of us can do. Well, I hope so. I think those things can hit a critical mass, and where it becomes fighting back against this myth is something that people want to do, and they do automatically and reflexively. So Charles Learson, again, the author of Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty, The Georgia Peach, is no longer with us, but as I said, he's a man who bruised easily. He despised this false reputation as a dirty player. He didn't earn it. And you have the facts. There's an index in the book. Look it up if you still want to cling to that. And I guess we can all turn our anger to maybe somebody who deserves it more fittingly. Uh, I enjoy, I, wa- I, I know I enjoyed watching you play the game of good journalism and reporter. And I want to thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much, Dean. It was a pleasure. Again, the book is Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty. As always, you can find the link to purchase the book at our website, historyauthor.com, and we hope you will click through there. We get the prize out of a box of Cracker Jacks every time you do. I want to again thank Charles Learson for joining us and for writing a book any one of us would want to have written about us if we had been so unfairly maligned by history. Please remember to visit charleslearson.com. And follow today's guest on Twitter, at Charles Learson. And remember, there's an H in there. L-E-E-R 
H-S-E-N. And remember, let us know what you think of the book, the interview, and Ty Cobb on Twitter at History Dean or Facebook.com slash History Author. And you can always email us, history at historyauthor.com. I hope you'll join us next week for another At Bat here on iHeartRadio. And I promise that is the last baseball pun of this show. And remember, if you do subscribe to us on iTunes as well as our iHeartRadio channel, we hope you'll take a moment and leave us a rating and a review. Well, that's it for this week's installment of the History Author Show. So until next Monday morning, thanks so much for listening, and happy reading. We leave you with a 1908 Edison Cylinder recording of Edward Meeker singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Oh, bye.